0: Welcome along everyone to another of Shared Ireland's podcasts. Today we'll be having a conversation with two gentlemen whose names are synonymous with truth, justice, survival and compassion. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Stephen Travers and Eugene Reavy.
1: Thanks very much, good to be here.
0: Thank you. Gentlemen, um, I suppose if I could maybe start with yourself, Stephen. We in Shared Ireland and our listeners would like to thank you for the time in this very busy period after the successful release of your Netflix film and again Eugene you were heavily involved in the making of this documentary as well. Um, Stephen the Miami Showband killings was an attack on the 31st of July 1975 by the UVF which is the Ulster Volunteer Force, a loyalist paramilitary group. It took place close to Newry County Down. Five people were killed, three members of your band and two of the UVF uh, members who were also UDR members I believe. But before we get into this Stephen, can you tell us a little bit about your upbringing, your early years and how you got into music?
1: Well I come from a small market town called Carrigan Shore. Uh, in South Tipperary. It's on the borders of uh, Tipperary, Waterford and Kilkenny. In fact, the town itself is split uh, by the river shore and the south side would be in Waterford um, and about two thirds of the town in Tipperary. I was born between, if I look out the my parents' bedroom window, I could see Sleeping the on mm-hmm. and then uh, down the down the road uh, a little bit was uh, Moon So I often say that I was uh, born between two of the nicest songs that were ever written very good uh, Sleeping the on and The Rose of Moon um, It It is uh, regular um, childhood. Um, the, the Hurling was a passion in the town,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, as you can imagine, Tipperary and, you know, yep. and, and Waterford, and Kilkenny is the heart of hurling country. Yeah. Uh, Eugene really often mentions football to me, and I have i must admit—I haven't got a clue what he's talking about. You know, <laughs> yes. uh, but um, the other passion in the town was uh, was music, and we, for a small town of its size, when I was growing up, it would have had about four thousand people. Okay, and. Uh, even though it's small, it had produced perhaps for at one stage the biggest folk group in the world, uh, the Clancy Brothers. Yes, uh, they were from from the town. Uh, oh, I didn't mom, realize that. Yeah, and my mother went to school with Paddy Clancy, and uh, we were all friends. And uh, one of my best friends in school was a lad called Robbie O'Connell, which was he, Robbie is their nephew. Mm-hmm. And uh, whenever it would rain uh, when we were in school, Paddy Clancy would come in and pick the two of us up and bring us home very good. Uh, from school. So the music was, was very, very important. Now, I can't sort of go any further than that without saying that we had a little bit of help from an Arma fella called Tommy Macon. Uh, in the Clancy brothers, so well, we okay. have to give them a little bit of credit. Yes, but uh, apart from that, um, and they were a big, big influence on on Bob Dylan. Uh, in fact, Bob Dylan once said that that uh, Liam Clancy was the the finest ballad singer he ever heard. Uh-huh. And I think that ballads and music were very, very important in any uh, conflict or uh, change situation mm-hmm. in the world. You can, I think, we all remember Bob Dylan himself seen blowing in the wind at the at the um, in the civil rights marches with uh, with uh, Martin Luther King so music has always been a uh, uh, very very important but I've not been a big physical fella uh, Hurling wasn't uh, I wasn't able to take on some of the big fellas in school uh, I would whack them on the ankles uh, <laughs> Rather than, than, than show the skills, so I thought, <laughs> yes. you know, before they'd whack me back, I'd, I'd, I'd look at the music side of things. Very good. And it, uh, I just, for some reason or other, uh, I found I was very good at it. Oh,
0: excellent.
1: Yeah. Eugene, if you don't mind, we'll bring you in here.
0: Um, Eugene, you had three brothers murdered by the f- uh, famous Glenan Gang on the 4th of January 1976. But again, before we get into that, if you wouldn't mind, could um, you tell us a little bit about your upbringing, where you grew up, your early years, and just fill us in for anyone that isn't aware of you or your story.
2: Yeah, well, I'm from South Armagh. Mm -hmm. I'm a village called White Cross. I've been, I was born and raised there all my life. It's a very small village. It used to only have 12, 15 houses. Now it's about a couple of hundred houses okay. but at the time there was uh, there was eight boys and four girls in our family and we were in a small laborers cottage there was no running water my, and my mother used to have to carry the water from the well did you say eight boys
0: and four girls eight boys Twelve and, and, four girls.
2: and my mother and father 14 14 pretty yeah. good. so i'll tell you if you were shy around the table you didn't get fed you wouldn't get you wouldn't get much with you and when you're going out to the dances first man out was the best man dressed yes. you know? but when I was younger I used to polish Seamus and Frank's shoes and I'd get a I'd get a couple of pants off them and that would get me over to the shop for to get a few blackjacks
0: yes very good
2: but uh, you know we were a very very um, happy family my father had a big big garden of spuds and vegetables and all that sort of stuff and uh, we used to always have to gather blackberries and uh, spuds at the back end of the year for to get ourselves a pair of boots and a, and a pair of jeans. And yeah. uh, you know, you'd have to wait your your turn because maybe somebody was getting ears this week, and you'd have to wait to the week after or the week Certainly, after. Yeah. And Yeah. Uh, but uh, we were a nationalist family in that we were like that. We were very fond of our GEA. We, we were very big in Irish dancing. Uh huh. And uh, uh, the language was was very important to us, and all things Irish. But mm-hmm. we weren't a republican family. Okay. So when these when these troubles started, and there was there was things happening, we we didn't take any precautions, or we, we, we weren't. Uh, because we didn't think that, that there would that there would be anybody ever, you ever didn't, come to you, our house.
0: You didn't feel as if you had anything to fear. No, yeah. we had we had nothing to
2: fear, and the key was always in our door. Yeah, always.
0: Yeah, understood. Thank you uh, for that, Eugene. Um Stephen, if you don't <coughs> mind, could you talk us through the events that took place on the 31st of July 1975? Now, I appreciate this is a very emotive subject, and it's probably obviously still quite raw but if you can talk us through a little bit about it for those of us that maybe just don't fully understand what happened that night.
1: Well um, as I say the music uh, was something that came very easy to me and uh, I began to get a reputation and I joined even before I left school I was playing in in bands Gave me more pocket money than most, you know, and and uh, uh, my reputation grew, and I started to uh, to play. I always tried to make an, a a point of playing with people older than me who I could learn from. I, I was like a sponge. I would yes. just soak up any information that I got. So um, eventually, uh, a lot of the you know I became a headhunted bass player. People wanted me to to play the bass with them, and nice. even people like. You know, I played when I was nineteen. I think it was I stood in for Tom Dunphy in the Big Eight, which was Bren, Brendan Boyer's band uh, when when they had put the super band together. They were just back from Las Vegas, and um, uh, Tom Dunphy, the great, the legendary bass player, who was uh, who was killed shortly before our incident in the car crash. Um, Tom was sick, and they hired me. And so, you know, that type of thing it really boosts your confidence, of course, and uh, the word spreads. Uh, and uh, eventually, the uh, the Miami uh, asked asked me if I if if I join in nineteen. It would have been about September, uh, nineteen seventy four. And uh, Anne and I had just got married, and I had met Anne in Cork, and we were we were now living in uh, uh, in Carrickonshire where I where I built a house, and um, so I considered the job with the with the Miami Showband. In seventy in September seventy four, but they wanted me to be their lead guitar player, and I had no interest in that. It's mm-hmm. like it's like asking, you know, hiring a plumber to do electric uh, to uh, you know wire yeah. your house. Yeah, they're two completely different animals. Certainly. So I turned that job down, and they came back to me again in nineteen seventy five in May of seventy five, and they asked me to join mm-hmm. as their bass player and I took that job and we hit the ground running really that year Uh, it was straight in sorry Stephen you mentioned
0: May so you were really only with the Miami for a couple of months before the atrocity took place
1: yeah uh, effectively only uh, because we immediately went on holiday when I joined and um, I was playing with them for about six weeks before this thing happened I was the new uh, the new guy the uh, new kid in town the new kid in town which is actually is one of my favourite records of all as, time as by, the, by the Eagles <laughs> Yeah, A yeah. live version of giving, up, giving away my age here but <laughs> <laughs> well, you're still younger than me um, and um, we we always like to have one night a week off um, and uh, and this particular week we had played uh, the Galway races on the Monday and Tuesday Monday or Tuesday would have been sort of normally our, our our night off uh usually tuesday but uh this particular week because we had played monday and tuesday in salt hill in a place called seapoint in galway um and being the big race festival the place was packed for the two nights and then we had we knew we were going to have thursday off but uh wednesday we had to do a gig in banbridge mm-hmm. and it was midweek uh, gig in the summertime people it was a, a nice holiday crowd there and uh um, we on the way back uh, it was just five of us as opposed to six of us normally so there were six in the band but the drummer Ray Miller decided to go home through his parents in Antrim and so five of us headed back in the personnel van it was a Volkswagen minibus which every self-respecting uh, hippie in the world had a Volkswagen minibus Yes. Uh, and we didn't travel with the gear we travelled with uh, although we Tony's guitar Tony Garrett's guitar and my guitar my bass guitar we wouldn't give them to the road managers because these fellas were usually too rough with them and you know and, and we wouldn't trust the roadies and I think there's sax saxophone was in the band as well mm-hmm. so we headed back off took our time it was a relatively short journey from Banbridge down to down to Dublin where we were based mm-hmm. and on the way down at the junction of the main road and Buskill Road uh, it must have been about two o'clock or half two in the morning, uh, we were stopped by a man waving a, a torch, a red, a red light. And this was you know you normally you know you could be stopped at any stage you know in the, in the, in the north at the time it wasn't unusual. It wasn't unusual. Um, now uh, the background to it is that at, at the time the British security forces were very unhappy with the uh, security arrangements in the south. Whereas, as I say, you could be stopped at any stage or anywhere in the north, in the south, uh, the the TDs, uh, the members of the Irish Parliament, were reluctant to have a stringent stop and search policy in the south because they felt it would disrupt the uh, the uh, daily lives of the people uh, who were uh, maybe crossing the border on a regular basis, maybe two or three times a day for Certainly. cheaper, cheaper. Or, cigarettes or groceries or petrol or whatever it was, yeah. so they felt that if there was a, a guard to stop and search uh, stringent all the time, like there was in the north, uh, that that they probably wouldn't be re-elected to the Dáil. Yes. and uh, so in order to force the Irish government to have this to step up their security in the south uh, um, the British security forces came up with an excellent plan, I have to say it was an excellent plan and um, and as I say they felt that if there was an outrage an IRA outrage in the north that they could once they crossed the border anywhere that they had relative safety uh-huh. but uh, so the plan was that if they could publicly frame some uh, commuters, trusted commuters uh, as people who were carrying arms or carrying bombs or whatever if they could frame them as uh, um, members of the ira or terrorists or whatever carrying bombs that it would um the irish government would be under enormous international pressure so the, uh, so, to, the, so the
0: british selected one of uh, the biggest bands in ireland at the time namely
1: being your own band the miami show band that's right as i said, it was a brilliant plan because if it had worked mm-hmm. the pressure would have been enormous uh, and um so on the night we were stopped and we were it was unusual that we were asked to stand out of the the to get out of the our minibus mm-hmm. because normally, uh, especially people in the UDR would have recognised us and would have you know the minute Brian Brian was our trumpet player Brian McCoy, he was um, uh, from Caledon, um, a Protestant Church of Ireland, and as was Ray Miller, there was, the band was a mixed band Catholics and Protestants from yeah. north and south and. Desley was with us as well. He was our sax player. He's born and reared in Belfast. But and again, Catholic.
0: they would have been aware of this—that it was a mixed band, like.
1: Yeah, well, everybody knew who yeah. we were, and um, so, as I say, normally they would they, they would. Brian would have said, you know, show them a card, or they would have recognised. Yeah. Fran, in particular, was Sorry. very recognisable, and they would have said, "Oh, how did the gig go?" You know, that's that was the normal. The thing normal conversation. Happen. And uh, sometimes they would even ask for tapes or records or whatever, or even an autograph. Or an autograph. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, And it was all a big adventure to me because it was, I, you know I was the new the new kid on the block uh, uh, yeah. on that night. So I thought it was wonderful. I thought it was even wonderful, even more wonderful then when when Brian said, "Lads, they want us to get out because they want to check the van."
0: Yeah.
1: And uh, I thought, you know, this is like being in the movies. You know. Right. So it's beautiful, beautiful morning. It was, and. Uh, They told us to line up uh, uh, at the side of the van facing the the field. And there was about a three meter drop down into the field. Can Um, I
0: just ask for, yeah, what age were you? uh, I was 24. 24, sorry. Uh,
1: My mother would have said I was 24 going on 10. You know, I was one of these fellows who had Absolutely no responsibility, and okay. my wife had it just about as much as we, we were like two really happy people, you know. Uh, Anne herself was a bit like a, uh, a you can imagine at the time the style, she was beautiful, uh, she still is, be- she was a model for Well, out the, you know, the whole sort of the, the cheesecloth generation yeah, and the yeah. headbands, and, uh-huh. you know, the, it was wonderful, it was a great time to be alive, and especially when you were in a top band, of or, course, you know, you know, who wouldn't like that life, but um. So I was standing with my, the told me to put my hands on my head, you know, the usual thing like you'd see in the movies uh-huh. and, and I was in the centre, Tony was to my left and Fran was to his left and uh, Brian was to my right and Des was to his right. So within maybe a metre, metre and a half away from the back of the van mm-hmm. and in front of us was a field um, where there was about a three metre drop down into the, into the field. And there was I when I got out of the van I could see these soldiers with uh what I'm told are submachine guns, I I wouldn't uh, but they had perforated barrels which I found fascinating. And yeah. uh and they were they were good humoured soldiers, these these men uh in UDR uniforms, which I learned afterwards. I didn't know the difference between one uniform and another. Yes. But um and they all had Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland accents at and, that stage.
0: And just seeing that you mentioned in UDR yes. uniforms, UDR is the Ulster Defence Regiment, which yeah. is local, I suppose mainly Protestant, working class men and women. Yes, that the British Army trained and paid to help. Police.
1: In you fact, know. it was it was the. Uh, Biggest regiment in the British Army at the time, mm-hmm. uh, and they had a reputation. Although I wasn't aware of it, they had a, a reputation of being not as professional as, say, the British Army. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and the lads would have been aware of that, you know. Uh, but we never had any reason to be suspicious that there was anything untoward about that, and they were actually joking with us. And one of them said to, "I uh, said to us, I bet you lads would rather be at home in bed than." Being out at the side of the road like this, and Fran, our singer, said, "I bet you'd rather be at home in bed than sitting in a ditch." Because he was sort of crouched down uh, with a, this gun on his on his lap, and the others were. There was a man walking around with a notebook, and there was another man uh, seemed to be in charge, and the man with the notebook was asking for our names and addresses. Uh-huh. And then, all of a sudden, uh, uh, this man entered entered in, into our uh, into the group. I can't say whether he arrived in the car that pulled up behind us or whether he was already there. I don't know, but he Mm -hmm. had a a distinct uh, English accent. This man very posh. Now I had when I I had a real job for a short while after I left school. I was a trainee broker at Lloyd's in London. I had gone to London, so I was well aware of the different types of accents. You know, that you would have had a working class accent, or you would have had. But this man was was uh, posh, uh, very much like some of the people that you hear. Spouting on about Brexit at the moment, you know, and I admired him when he came on. He, you know, in the minute he arrived, uh, Brian Mackay, um, uh, which who was to my right, nudged my elbow with his, and he said, "Don't worry, Steve. This is British Army." Yes, uh, and the inference there is that we'd be safe because and and that the thing would be done quickly and professionally, possibly more professional, and that we'd be away quickly, okay. and they would they would just check the van, and he changed the order he asked uh, he asked them, the soldier who was in charge what um, you know what the man with the notebook was doing and he said he's taking their names and addresses and this uh, british officer english officer said uh, no i want their names and dates of birth which i'm told afterwards is the proper procedure now uh-huh. whether it is i don't know but um and at that time I, there was at the back of a volkswagen minibus Cause the engine is in the back, but there's a little sort of shelf, a little flap over the engine uh-huh. that you can you know, have access to the back of the, the the van. And there's a little shelf there where I carried my bass guitar, and Tony had his uh, his guitar, his Gibson, a lovely cherry red Gibson Les Paul, or uh, no, three three five, and on on top. And then there was, I believe, there was Dez's sax there. I don't quite remember that, but. Des says his sax was there as well. And I heard the clasps of one of the guitars opening. Mm-hmm. And I was worried that, you know, these men would uh, would maybe damage the guitars. As sure. I say, we wouldn't even give them to the roadie. So very naively, because I knew nothing about this procedure and I certainly didn't sense any danger, I took my hands down and I, I turned around and I walked the two or three steps back to these men. And I said, can I help you with that? I was concerned about the guitar. Yeah. And there was a little case that I kept um, effects pedals in. Uh, For anybody who uh, knows about these things, one was a wah-wah pedal, and the other was a a thing called an octave divider, which was unusual for a bass player, but I I used them at that time. And um, I went to open the, the guitar case, and this man pointed at the little case And he said, are there valuables in that? What's in it? Okay. And I think in hindsight, he probably wondered if the money from the gig was was in it. You know. Right, yes. But uh, we would never carry the money. The roadie had gone off with that. And again, unusual uh, that the roadie had gone ahead of us, but we were taking our time. And uh, I I went to uh, put my hand up towards that case to show him what was in it. And he hit my hand very hard, knocked it down. And they turned me around and and pushed me and gave me a punch into the back and I thought this was unusual this is uh, you know why would they treat somebody you know with such disrespect mm-hmm. and uh, what we didn't see no he knocked me back into a different part of the lineup uh, I was no longer in the center I was now between Des who was on the extreme right towards the closest to the van I was hit between him and Brian mm-hmm. and um, when what we didn't see was that there were two uh, soldiers uh, placing a, a ten-pound bomb underneath the driver's seat. For years, I thought that they, that the bomb had gone off in the back of the van, but it was actually under the driver's seat. Mm-hmm. And this was a ten-pound uh, commercial explosive, so that would have been, I think, gelignite or something like that. Whatever, much more lethal than you would have had, say, in these so-called homemade bombs or anything. Yeah, and the. Uh, the plan was that they would have, we wouldn't have known about this bomb, and we would have been told, "Thanks very much for your cooperation." Off you go. And ten minutes down the road, this would have gone off, and we would have been blamed. For you know, people would have said, "Who can you trust?" Yeah. The uh, Miami Showband are carrying uh, uh, bombs or transporting bombs for for the IRA. And what actually happened was that while there were uh, placing this bomb or perhaps primate or something I don't know how they, these things work but it went off and there was two men uh, doing this trying to place the bomb and one was a man called Harris Spoil the other man was called Wesley Somerville mm-hmm. whose brother John was actually there as well uh, but these two unfortunate men were blown to pieces Uh-huh. There was very little of them left; their limbs and that were blown out into the into the field, and the van completely disintegrated. Where anybody who has seen the pictures <coughs> will see the yeah. destruction. Yeah. And uh, I often look back on the fact that I was only a couple of feet away from it when it happened. It's uh, as the scene of crime officer said to me later on. It's just it's a total miracle that you're alive. But, Absolutely. Uh, I won't look a gift horse in the mouth. Yeah. And um, when it went, when the bomb went off, I was thrown into the air and the whole world turned red for me it was like it was like living in a you know this massive sort of almost like a, uh, an intense sunset i often described as like the color of a blood red orange that's what it felt like okay and i went up into the air and i tried to run because the gunfire started as far as i'm concerned almost immediately yeah and i tried to run and i couldn't because uh i was in the i was in the air and then I started to go down through the through the ditch uh-huh. into the field, um, which is, as I say, was about three meters down. And as I went down through the ditch, I felt like I was going in slow motion. It was yeah. I had this incredible heightened sense of awareness. Yeah. Uh, there was I could almost count every leaf and bramble and branch that as I, in the ditch as I went down. Okay. And I hit the ground very hard. Then, and uh, at least two people, if not three, fell on top of me. Desley our Shakespeare had been blown to the right uh, into the into the field. But uh, they tell me that while I was in the air, that I was shot with what they call a dum-dum bullet, okay, uh, which is an explosive bullet hollowed out specifically to explode on impact to cause maximum cause maximum damage. Yeah. and it hit me in the in the right hip, and it went up into my into my stomach and it exploded and it into 16 pieces and the rest of it then travelled up through my body up through my left lung and out under my left arm Mm -hmm. and uh, the lads that fell on top of me uh, tried to pull me one of them at least tried to pull me out into the I think in hindsight now that it was Brian McCoy and you can imagine that he was a son of a uh, he was a Protestant lad a son of an orange a member of the orange order yeah uh trying to pull a, a Catholic from South Tipperary into the field away from this thing Yeah. Uh, but he must have thought I was dead because I was, you know, I, I had been shot and I was a dead weight and I couldn't move mm-hmm. and um, while he was doing that um, the soldiers jumped down with their hand and I, one thing that stands out for me was the obscenities and the cursing and the swearing that they were screaming and shouting and and they shot Brian dead well beside me they shot him in the back of the head and the back and the arms and and he died beside me and um Fran and Tony our guitar player and lead singer and keyboard player uh, Fran O'Toole they caught them within a couple of feet of me and I remember them screaming and sh- asking not to be not to be killed I mean I could hear I still I can still hear the, their cries and begging not to be killed and and uh, they uh, they gave them uh, particularly bad, particularly Fran, they gave him they, they shot him 22 times and there were seven of those who were in the face. He was a particularly good looking lad and uh, shot Tony in the back, in the back of the head and the hands. I thought it was an obscene thing. He's he's He was one of the greatest guitar players Ireland ever produced. Um, highly admired by everybody from Rory Gallagher to Gary Moore, all of these people loved him and uh, they uh, they killed them where, where yeah, right, right beside me. And then, when all the shouting and the screaming and the this consternation seemed to die down, um, everything seemed to be on fire. the The ditch was on fire. There was, the van had been disintegrated. There was a smell of blood. There was, and uh, there was, at least one of them was walking around kicking all the bodies to make sure they were dead and he had a revolver and uh pretty violently kicking the bodies and he came over to brian who was beside me and uh, he was kicking him and actually he stood over tony and although tony was dead and you just you know i won't go into the injuries that he had but this man cool calm collected shot him again in the scrotum with a revolver and uh when, when they walked over, when this man walked over towards me, I was certain that he was going to fire into me. And I'd, the dilemma was, you know, do I get up and beg for my life or do I stay where I am and pretend to be dead? And thankfully I chose the latter. And uh, just as he stood over me, somebody on the on the road shouted down, come on, those bastards are dead. I got them with dum-dums. That it's the first time I ever heard the term dum-dum. And miraculously he he didn't fire into me he, he he turned and he started to walk away and I was still convinced that he might fire and I was stealing myself not to budge but he did he didn't fire and he got they they eventually left and uh, then I heard Des calling our names and uh, he called Tony and Fran and Brian and there was no answer and he called me and and I answered I thought I was Perfectly coherent, I thought. You know, he said, uh, "Are you okay, Stephen?" I said, "I'm, um, I'm grand." And uh, so he said, "I'm going to get help." And he got up onto the onto the road, and he said, "the the road was was a disaster." He said there was body parts and and terrible scene of carnage. He called it. He said it was like a war zone. And uh, a truck came down, a lorry of some sort trying to maneuver through this because the road was still on fire with a, maybe petrol or whatever, I don't know. And uh, the truck didn't know who he was, saw all this carnage and perhaps thought he was part of something. Refused to take him. He wanted to go into Newry Police Station to raise the alarm. And then eventually a car came down with a young couple in it and they took him into Newry Police Station. In the meantime, the police wouldn't come into the field because... There was a danger that the bodies may be booby trapped, and so I spent about maybe forty-five minutes crawling around in the field. It was a beautiful night, and uh, I remember lying on my back, looking up at the at the at the sky. And uh, I had we, Fran had introduced us to a young girl from Belfast at one of the our gigs. A few weeks before and we were fascinated because this girl fran told us you're going to meet a girl who was shot at one stage you know her boyfriend was killed and she was shot and we were keen to ask you know what's it like to be shot and uh, i was fascinated and and i said you know how did you know you were alive and she said i felt a gentle rain falling my fa- on my face and i i was thinking to myself when i was lying in the field you know, I can't feel any rain. I wish I could feel rain, you know, I wish the rain would come so that I'd, i And uh, I was tapping my feet together and counting my fingers and rolling around and trying to see, basically doing an MOT on myself to see what was working or what wasn't working. And uh, I couldn't figure out that there was no blood. I couldn't figure out really what had happened, but my stomach was heavily extended and all the bleeding was inside. My lung had collapsed. I found it difficult to breathe. And uh, I would crawl around to each of the lads and tell them Des has gone for help. He'll be back soon, and you'll be okay, and we can all go home. So you're in denial, you know. Eventually, I'm, I'm
0: not speaking here, Stephen, because to be honest with you, for one of the first times in my life, I'm kind of speechless. So apologies. Oh, I'm um, you're doing a remarkable job. I genuinely, I can't, I can't believe the detail that you're given here, the clarity. Recalling certain things that you remember saying to yourself, like yeah. like the rain on your face, yeah. um, I, c- I can only imagine what you were thinking.
1: Well, eventually, uh, the police came in, and uh, I heard the uh, there was a helicopter. They sent a helicopter in first, and there was shining lights, and I heard all the sort of the nasal voices of the walkie talkies, the old fashioned walkie talkies, and uh, and. Uh, I wasn't sure if these, if there was the people were these soldiers were back again, or who they were. Um, I was quite confused, I suppose. Uh, and they, uh, next thing there was a, a light. I stood up and I put my hands up, and uh, and all I could think of saying was help. I said, it's, it was almost embarrassing, you know, that I had never been had to have been in that situation before. And there was a light torch on in my face, and. Um, Uh, this man said uh, we're the police son that's what he said to me and he said we're going to get you out of here and as I walked and they were shining the torches on the ground and I could see the lads and I could see um, I could see Fran's hand and there was the neatest trickle of blood down into his palm the neatest trickle, I remember being horrified at that Now, later the psychiatrist psychologist tell me that I saw an awful lot more but I blocked it out Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought it was obscene the fact that he was, this fabulous musician who, had, an hour and a half before that had, had been playing clap your hands stomp your feet and all their girls and boys jumping up and down, and singing along with us, uh, and he was his hand with blood on it. I, I just didn't register why it should happen. But they, they eventually brought me to Daisy Hill Hospital, uh, where I got my faith back and humanity very very quickly. These people are just wonderful. That's why I love Nuri. Yeah, very good. Remarkable,
0: um, Stephen, genuinely remarkable, and I and our listeners really appreciate you um, going into such detail there. Um, Just before I go on to Eugene, I would like to just pick up on one point, Stephen. The man with the English accent. Yes. The authorities point blank refused to believe you and more or less dismissed your account that this English gentleman was even there. Why was that? Do you think?
1: Well, it's not just the authorities. Uh, our own uh, um, legal team at the time, when I brought, whenever I would bring up this, uh, I, I I remember saying to them uh, at the preliminary trials, which were actually held in newry uh, because we were terrified to go to, uh, up to Belfast. But they they uh, conceded that when and brought them down to Newry and I remember saying. You know before before I gave my evidence, and will I tell them about the uh, uh, about the Englishman and the the English officer? Mm-hmm. because he had you know when I saw this English officer, as I say, I admired him because he you know I, I often thought, you know, if ever I was to be a soldier, I'd like to be a fellow like this because he looked very cool. he had slightly lighter color fatigues, he had a mm-hmm. different very and he had a, an air of authority that made all of these men who weren't so professional, perhaps. And they all of a sudden they you know they became very professional, and I thought you know he had a side arm, yeah. he had uh, a gun on his on his side, and all of these things that you you look at in the comics when you're a kid and you think mm-hmm. you know this is cool character, and whenever uh, you know I said to our legal team, uh, will I will I tell them about the English officer, and uh, they would always say I uh, know. You needn't bother mentioning him because uh, that's not important and uh, the reality is now that I, I i know that he was very important and the last thing the world they should be doing is dismissing his presence because uh you know i i took it for granted that there may that there would probably be normal to have a british officer in charge of a, a udr unit or something and i thought that for years but you know the fact that he was there with these men who were not just UDR but also members of the UVF would uh, bring about this you know bring the word collusion which I had no idea what it meant uh-huh. into the conversation and years afterwards years afterwards when we were dealing with the HET um, they again tried to discredit that that evidence and I kept asking when, it, when we were given the HET report they, because they tried to claim in the H.E.G. report that it was one of the soldiers, they said MacDowell or Crozier was actually putting on an English accent. Yes. So I said, well, in the full knowledge that we were going to be dead within 10 minutes, why would somebody disguise their voice? Uh-huh. I mean, they didn't bother disguising their faces. There were no balaclavas. There was nothing like that. So they were... And then when I pressed the point, I said, can you please look closer into this the idea that th- this man was there, and they came back with uh, this retort. They said to me, "We don't know. This is the HGT now. Uh-huh. Only a couple of years ago, we don't know when you started to bring this English man into the narrative." Uh-huh. And I thought yeah. immediately. Thought to myself, "Well, when did I bring it bring it into the narrative? You know, when did I?" And I thought that they that they were after winning this argument. You know that I thought maybe this person has just come in to you know over the years that it's been convenient yeah. to uh, so I went back and uh, back down uh, we had at this stage been living in Cork and uh, I went back down and I said to my I said to to my wife I said uh, I said do you know when I first started to talk about this Englishman with the posh accent mm-hmm. this British officer and she said yes I do uh, while you were still in hospital she said within a week of of, uh, of 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 the incident, yeah. And I said, how could I prove that? And she had kept these newspaper cuttings, yeah. And I had done an interview on the Evening Herald for, and there was actually an English uh, reporter at the time. He was the music correspondent called Tony Wilson, and the Miami management allowed this man to do an interview with me for the Evening Herald on the, and it was published on the tenth of August which would have been 10 days after. But I think that the uh, that, that the the interview was done about three or four days before that. So within a, just a week of this yeah. terrible atrocity. And clearly, I still, and I sent these to the HET, I said, here are the newspaper cuttings dated the 10th of August, 1975, where I am telling the world that there was a British officer and that Brian McCoy, who was born and raised in Northern Ireland and whose, uh, whose uh, brother-in-law or cousins were in the B specials yeah. that how would he possibly make a mistake and he's told me and I clearly said it and I've been saying it since then and I sent these, I scanned the newspapers uh, cuttings and sent them to the HGT, and they refused to acknowledge that they even received them Yeah. Uh, so yeah, absolutely uh, this was Cover up of this man from start to finish, and they want to put all of the blame over here onto the participants. And, and sure, they're guilty, mm-hmm. but they want to—they want to try to keep the other side uh, uh, of, of the IRC clean and with clean hands and blame the Mad Irish for killing each other, killing each other. which is not the case. No, certainly. Remarkable
0: Stephen and um, we'll come back to you in a little moment. I want to just go on to uh, Eugene, if I may. Eugene, as I stated at the um, start, you had three brothers murdered by the Glen Ann gang on the 4th of January 1976. If you wouldn't mind Eugene, can you talk us through the events that took place on, on that particular day, please?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, normally we would we would have went over home on a on a Sunday evening. It was a it was it was something that we always did after we got married and we and we were living away from home. On a on a Sunday evening, we always went home about five or six o'clock, possibly after the football or wherever we we had been. And go ahead, even. Normally there would have been three or four of us all playing on the football team at the one time, and uh, quite often my and mother would have to go into Daisy Hill to see some of us because there was always a bit of boxing at the football, and we weren't that big at the f- at the football, maybe, but we were wicked enough for them to howl our own, and it yes. was always roused at the football because if you hit one, you had to hit us all. You had a lot of it. So. Uh, uh, on this Sunday in particular, mummy told us I'd have 11 mass that morning. Uh, may don't be coming over this evening because I'm going over for the visit her sister in in Kamla, which is only 20 miles away. So we didn't bother going over and uh, I was sitting, uh, I was sitting reading the, the Sunday Times in the house uh, and uh, Sometime about about just after the news at six o'clock mummy and daddy and and three or four of the younger ones and my brother Oliver uh, drove them. They went over to visit mummy's sister in Kamla. And uh, left at home was just John Martin who was uh, 24. He was a bricklayer. Brian was 22 was a joiner and he was he, he was a good footballer. He uh, represented East County at minor level and under t- uh, 21 and was on the senior panel uh-huh. and uh, Anthony he was 17, he was an apprentice electrician and uh, they were sitting at home and they were watching Celebrity Squares and about ten past six just about five minutes after my mother left and that, they noticed this gun uh, coming in on the on the top of the door uh-huh. and they didn't really panic around because they, they thought maybe it was the soldiers around taking a census or you know acting a candy man or
0: something
2: yeah which they would normally be at and uh just immediately being a four, anybody could get could you seen and this man opened up with this with a machine gun and uh and he uh john martin was sitting on a chair at the fire uh, and he only had one sock on him. He was he was putting on his socks. He must have been going somewhere. And uh, this fella, they shot him here first of all three times. One, two, three.
0: In the chest area. Yeah.
2: And he and he fell off the chair onto the floor. And whilst he was on the floor, they put another full magazine into him and uh, just cut him in two. And his his clothes were oh my god if you'd have seen him. So Brian. And Anthony ran into the room just behind him and Brian had Brian got one shot through the back out through his heart and killed him instantly. Now he he had a few other bullets around his his lower back and uh, the youngest fellow Anthony he went up into the room he got he got away and dived onto the bed up at the top of the room Mm -hmm. and this gunman came up after him and he sprayed the bed and when he I think there was seventeen bullets in Anthony in his lower groin and uh, area, and that, and uh, so uh, Anthony listened away and pretended to be dead. And uh, when the gunman went back up into the kitchen, he he, was, he he shut off all the other doors, looking for the rest of us, because they must have thought that there was that there was going to be more than than three. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of times on a Sunday after the football, quite a uh, a number of the boys used to come down to Blair House for a bit of crack and my father could have played hell with them all, you know. And uh, so, uh, Oliver, meantime, had been over, had been leaving Mummy away and he arrived home, parked his car, whistled down the path, opened the door and he found this mess, you see. So... Uh, Anthony, meanwhile, he was the youngest fella He uh, crawled out from under the bed, felt Brian's pulse. He hadn't far to go as far as Stephen there, and then he, he he came up into the kitchen, and he seen John Martin, and he knew that he didn't have to feel his pulse that he was dead. Yeah. So Anthony crawled out onto the road, and, and across the road now he had he had seventeen bullet holes in him, and he was bleeding profusely and he managed to crawl up it's about 200 yards up to the neighbor's house and in that time there was a car past him it was a neighbor's car but the neighbor thought he was acting a candy man or was acting a fool yeah you know? okay and they didn't stop so i mean when he got up to all he, he pulled himself up on the gate and he lunged over at the door and he started to battle the door and uh, uh, when angela uh, O'Hanlon opened the door. Anthony, Anthony shouted, "I'm shot!" And everybody's shot. And then he passed out. So she, she tried to do her best for him and keep him as comfortable. And Pat, the the, uh, the husband, he phoned for the doctor and the priest. And uh, and the police. Mm-hmm. So, um, that was about 20, 20 Twenty-six minutes past six, and the HET are able to tell me that one of the policemen was was in our house several minutes prior to the to the alarm being raised. Okay, so he was a clever guy.
0: He, he so, could see the
2: future. Uh, I was sitting up in my own house, and my father, Con Malone, uh, came up and he says, "Eugene, there's been an accident over at the cottage with you. I may throw your coat on you and come on over." Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I knew by him that there was something wrong because it'd normally be jolly and a bit a crack and all, and I didn't want to, didn't want an eye roshing on the children, so I went, to, I slipped away on over and I said, "I'll be back in ten minutes." So halfway, over, uh, halfway over the road, I, uh, you know, I asked Con. Um, what happened? And he was reluctant to say. And then he he told me that there was that there was a shooting at the cottage, and he believed that that maybe there was one fatality. So anyway, in a, in a couple of minutes, we were over the road, and I jumped out of the, the car and was going into the house. And this policeman stepped out in front of me, and he says, "You're not allowed in here." And, and I said to him, well, I mean, that's my family uh, home and there's been something that happened here and I'm going in. So I caught him and I fired him out of my road and I uh, walked on in. And the first thing I seen when I went in was, was now John Martin lying in the middle of the floor and the chair that he was sitting in, the arm was just cut clean off it with a bullet, you know. And whilst I was stu- I was stuck to the floor and staring at John Martin, I noticed this policeman, and he was rummaging through the, the China cabinet. And I said to him, Excuse me, officer, I mean, what are you doing? And he says, I'm looking for ammunition. He says, I've, I've, uh, I have I've reports that there's ammunition stored in this house. So I said to him, well, says, Unless you're going to plant ammunition, there is certainly no ammunition in this house.
0: And what about the dead bodies lying around you? There was no word of that.
2: So... Kevin Ravy had come in. He was a cousin of mine. He was, he was only fourteen, but he was a good tight lad. I caught this policeman by the neck, and we physically ejected him out through the door. And I always wondered why the the police never said to me, "Don't, don't be manhandling that man or anything like that." But I didn't know until a few years ago that they give Kevin a bit of a, a bit of a duffing when he when he was outside. But so. Uh, uh, you know, eventually, when my father, uh, Father Cues and Doctor Stewart then had uh, pronounced the boy's dead and given the last strikes, one thing and other, and then Doctor Stewart and and Father Kuse went over to my mother's a- sister in Camera and uh, told them that they had, that they, that there had been an accident and. And he asked my father to take his jacket off and he gave him an injection and he gave my mother an injection for it to settle them Okay, down. yeah. And then mommy came home and uh, the ambulance was, was it was just about pulling off, you know, as they came home. Yeah. And uh, then they went into Daisy Hill Hospital and Seamus then, uh, Seamus was over and, he's, and his mother-in-law, he didn't know anything about this at all until a neighbour called and, and told him. Yeah. So then he just come on into Daisy Hill Hospital and uh, and you uh, know he had to go and and identify the boys. Now Daddy was with him, but then Daddy took a bit of a turn and he wasn't going to go in. So that night when I spent mostly uh, looking after Anthony. he was up in the intensive care because he was shot all over the place. You see. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, it was when I got up, he was he was conscious and he was he wasn't talking on the first night at all, like he was maybe traumatized and all this. So the next day was Monday and we were very busy the next day getting getting the funeral arrangements made and uh, we had to go and get suits and we had to go and, and get a get coffins organized and like there was a lot of work to do. It was the first funeral ever we had. Yeah. And yeah. we didn't know nothing about it, you know, or, or how to go about of it. Of How to get the grave diggers organized. And by this time, the world's press had arrived at the gate because they'd all been in Belfast over Christmas and they were all back to work. And there was there was TV cameras from from Canada and from the States and from Germany and everywhere there, you know. But uh, my father Conan Malone said like that he would deal with the press that he didn't want any of us to deal, because we were only young fellows and we would have no idea, like we would have no idea how to how to deal with the press and they would maybe ask you a question that you didn't want to answer and or you or you didn't know how to answer yeah so father Malone and my father then said they would they would look after all the the press now when he was trying to do these interviews all day. There was a big helicopter overhead, drowning out everyone. You one of them big yokes. Yeah, a Chinook. It? Chinook. And some of the reporters took what they got, what, um, what they got but uh, even little um, held on. And at four o'clock, uh, a very funny thing happened. Uh, the helicopters left the skies. Okay. The army went back to Bestbrook. To the army camp, the police went back to Besbrook barracks, and the UDR went to Glenan. Right now, our, every road round us was was completely closed off.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, on the Sunday evening, they'd been closed off too, but there were there were there were illegal checkpoints mm-hmm. that the police always denied that was there, but we know that they were they were there because people came on and told us. So every route into our house was. Sealed off, and then... And why do you think that was? What well, I mean, mean, that was all part of the of the plan.
0: To give safe passage, to, possibly. For, for, to
2: give safe pa- Now, these guys, like, they command in and done the shooting then. They jumped into the cars and they were... From the, the time they, the, they left Mitchell's Farm uh-huh. in Glen Ann, they were back home again in about 11 minutes. Okay. Job done. Now... Uh, uh, Anthony hadn't even made it up to O'Hanlon's at this stage for them to raise the alarm, they were home prior to the alarm was raised yeah so uh, we were going to the the, the plan was we would leave home at 5.30 and go in and pick up the uh, two corpses at 6 o'clock but Ivan Little did an interview with my uh, father and it was going to be on the 5.40 bulletin on UTV, uh-huh. so we decided that we would that we would wait, and everybody that was in the in the cortège of cars outside all come in, and we were stuffed into the the house for the for the witches, and, and my father uh, was interviewed, and he called for no retaliation for the murder of his sons, and he said that like that 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 if his son's death prevented anyone else from being shot, then they would not have died in vain. And at that, we left home at about, at the very latest, Mm 5.45. The very latest now, 5.45. And maybe earlier, because we just listened to one item on the news. We got into the cars. I was in the lead car, and I had my wife and somebody else. I don't know who was with me. And Seamus, my brother, he had my mother and father behind us, and so on and so on. And the lads from the football club and woke mates and all was in the, the, the other cars uh, and we headed on down the road and one minute after we left home, one minute and one mile, I was coming up, uh, we went through Kings Mills Crossroads and then up the road and there was a fella up there waving his arms frantically and I, I sort of pulled up, slowed down and, and pulled up uh, and the man that was, that, that, that was on the road, I had known him mm-hmm. And he came down to the uh, car and he says, "Jump out quick, Eugene! There's been an awful massacre up here." So I got out of my car and I walked from maybe from maybe here to the other end of that corridor, which wasn't very far—twenty yards. 28 yards, you yeah. know. And I saw I saw all these bodies lying on the road, and there was a there was a sort of a thick drizzle, if you understand what I'm uh-huh. saying. There was a minibus on the left-hand side, and the lights were. Still on her, and then I, 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 I was I was coming up to the to the brow the hill. I could I could in the haze of the lights and that I could see all this uh, smoke or whatever. I I thought it was I didn't know what it was like. It was like uh, steam rising out of these bodies. Yes, and when I looked up first, I thought it was McGee's cows. Because the minibus was just at the the entrance to the gate, yeah. And then, as I took another step or two, I noticed that there were, that were, um, human beings. yeah. So, uh, uh, my heart was in my mouth, and uh, 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 I just said to uh, to you know, Jerry, born Jerry, I says, listen, I can't hack this. I'm just on my, on my way into Daisy Hill for to pick up our corpses. And I said Jerry, we you we gonna go over to McGee's and and ring up and get, you know, the doctor or, or the police or or ambulance or whatever yeah. whatever it has to be got. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm sorry now that I, like, that I didn't walk round the minibus because Alan Black he he was still alive. Uh-huh. Now Jerry didn't know at this stage that he was alive. Nobody knew that that there was anybody alive. Yeah. And. Uh, so we left, and uh, you you know, I walked back down to the car, and I told my brother like that, like, like that there was a that there was a shooting. I didn't want to annoy everybody. No. I just and I said, tell everybody for the for the back on down to the to the crossroads, and we'll go a, a different way. A different way. Yeah. So we went we went into Yuri So. We finally got into Newry and we uh, and we stopped at, at the morgue and we went inside and, uh, and my father Malone and my father Q said prayers over the boys and everybody filed uh, along and they paid their last respects to the to the two boys and then we had a uh, go out and, and I sit in this auntie room onto the and the undertakers put the uh, put the lids on the coffins and one thing and another so when with the two coffins ready for the benedict the uh, the hearse and and, uh, and I closed up the boot, we then couldn't get out of Daisy Hill because all these cars police cars and ambulances were all coming in and we were held up maybe for about an hour yeah so in a, in, a, in, a, in a room not very far from us was these families. Mm-hmm. Now we didn't know who they were. We hadn't a clue who these people were. Yeah. But there was all these people in you uh, uh, in this room. I and I went down into this room and I said to them, "My name is Eugene Reavy. I'm a member of the Reavy family. And I and I'd like to ex- express our condolences to you on the the death of your loved ones." Yeah. But they were all crying and hugging each other and you know all this. Yeah. So, uh, eventually we got we got cleared for the for the go home and, uh, 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 was, and as the two horses took off, Seamus' car this time was in front mm-hmm. uh, was, and I was behind them and we drove out the road, out near the mountain house and we got, there was a checkpoint. There were an army checkpoint, and there was two jeeps on on the road, and they let the, the two horses through. And when Seamus's car and my car come, then they stopped us in between the two Land Rovers. Mm-hmm. Do you understand what I'm saying? To you? Yeah. One there and one here. So they took us out of the cars, and uh, it, it was raining, and. Uh, I, I I was up again. this Land Rover Seamus and myself and this this young soldier had his gun in my back and it, it was going like a like a drill like he was mm-hmm. he, like he was he was that nervous mm-hmm. that the that the gun was bouncing off my back mm-hmm. and I thought to myself this fucker's gonna shoot me you know and I thought to myself well you know they didn't get us all last night when we were there but by God they they're not going to get us now, mm-hmm. you know. And then over my shoulder, I noticed this soldier messing with my mother. And Daddy hadn't got out of the car because he wasn't fitting to get out of the car. He, he was after taking a, a turn at the morgue. That's right. So I'm looking over my shoulder and I sees this guy at my mother and he was saying, Oh, Mrs. Reavy, you've only one nose, Mrs. Reavy. Where's your other nose, Mrs. Reavy? Oh, isn't it well for you, Mrs. Reavy, that there's no trouble or no problems on us out here in the cold and the rain looking after you is over here? Oh, where's your other ear, Mrs. Reavy? You have only two ears, Mrs. Reavy. And I'm standing there and I say to myself, fuck mate, this woman read eight, eight boys and they could box the heads of people all round Armagh every Sunday, Year and now my mother's in trouble, and we can't lift one hand to help her because if, if we'd have uh, moved, there's no doubt that, would, that they would have shot us. So, your man continued at this, and it went on after that, and it got worse. And uh, we, I, I couldn't help her, and to, uh, to this day, that annoys me. I, I think to myself, like you know, mommy reared us all and she loved us, loved us all and she, she was goodless and she was kindless and, and in horror of need, we, we couldn't lift a hand to help her. So, the next thing was this other bastard of a soldier, excuse my language, went over and I he opened it, the... I think it's quite understandable. And, given and he opened the sense. boot of Seamus's car and there was three plastic bags full of clothes that uh, belonged to the boys. Now, Anthony's bag, it was there too. Uh, they emptied them out on the road and the soldier danced on them. Now, I don't know what sort of animals these fellas was because th- there was my mother with two sons dead, another fellow fighting for his life, and they were at this carry-on on the road. And I'm not so sure whether any soldier would just would you take that on himself for to do that, or whether they were ordered to do it? So just to be clear, on your way
0: from the morgue,
2: from the morgue,
0: with your dead brothers yes. and your mother and unwell father, yeah, and a whole family yeah. mourning, the soldiers took out your dead brother's clothes, yes, emptied them on the main road, yes, and proceeded to dance. dance on them.
2: On yes, them. that is fact. So. Finally, uh, they let us go. Big deal, you know. And we got down home, and we got the uh, coffins into the room, and Mummy sat in the middle of them, and p- the people all started to come in. Now, th- like there was wake for for a Monday night, Tuesday night, and then the then the funeral was on the Wednesday. There was about ten thousand people at the funeral, and I never seen a, a funeral like it in my life. But when we were carrying the coffins. Right up to the chapel, it was about three mile, and we and we carried them all the way. Footballers and everybody from neighbouring clubs all come in, you know, like with like with a lot of people up from Tyrone, from Derry, from Monaghan, from Down. You know, all the fellas that the boys played football against Certainly. and school football and. Racing and jumping and all that sort of nonsense. The
0: community rallied together. Yeah,
2: and the workers, like when they were out walking, they were out walking in, in Hilltown and they were walking in Dundalk and they were walking, you know, different places. Yeah. So the helicopter followed us the whole way up to the graveyard. Uh-huh. When this big thud noise, you know, going round and round. And every hole in the hedge, there was a soldier pointing the gun at us. Uh-huh. And there was also an eye guy uh, photographing every 10 yards up the road. And this went on the whole three miles up to the graveyard. So they had a great day filming people on, and, and uh, you know, re- really, uh, it was an intelligence gathering exercise. That, uh, uh, um, they were on. Some people say that there was about 300 soldiers I mean, uh, all together.
0: Intimidation, I suppose, is a word that well, they used. Uh, they never interfered with us. Mm. But I suppose, the, photographing people. Yeah.
2: They they were there eh, the whole way up the, the road. So that was alright. we got get up to the chapel and uh and the mass was said and I I can't remember mm. any of the mass. I can't remember it at mm. all. So at that my my brother Anthony was in Daisy Hill Hospital and and he was watching the the funeral on the TV. Okay. Now, um, how much of it they showed or not, I don't know. But his girlfriend stayed with him all morning. And then, uh, after Holy Communion, my cousin left the church and went in and relieved her for the let her come out yeah. for the burial. But the police say they took a statement from Anthony that morning. Mm-hmm. Now, if they um, um, you know, if they did, it was very insensitive. Mm-hmm. It, it was the wrong time to be doing that. Yeah, and I don't believe that Sister Quinn would have allowed any policeman anywhere near him. because yeah. it was only it was only two days after the yeah. attack. So and yeah. Alan Black, on him, was in the same room.
0: Okay.
2: So that was all right. Like we got the mass
0: over. Do you want me to? No, no. I just, I appreciate you guys having meeting and ah, well, ten minutes time. It's I, all right. Good. I, I, listen again, using just like Stephen. I, I, I'm kind of speechless here. Till for you to sit here and relay your story to me and our listeners. Yeah. And the detail that you have done is nothing short of remarkable. Well, that, um, just let
2: me. Yeah. Just, uh, just let me finish. The boys were buried on the on the seventh, and then Anthony. Anthony was uh, home from the hospital and he was doing well, as we thought. He was doing very well. He was skipping up and down to the shop on his crutches. Good. So one Saturday evening, he, he decided for the Guap please girlfriend's house in Blake, uh-huh. two miles away. And Oliver left him up and they were stopped five times in that two-mile journey. Uh-huh. Um, on who are you, who's your passenger, where are you going, all this nonsense and yeah. checking the, the boot. Dropped him off and he came back home uh, five more checks again. Where did you leave your passenger All mm-hmm. this? So we were um, we were to go up for him after much of the day that night, which was about half 11 or, or quarter to 12. But there was an awful big presence of soldiers in White Cross that night and they were behaving very badly mm-hmm. and they were... They were they were uh, ripping people's cars apart and one thing and Yeah. So mommy went out to the phone box, and phoned him up and she said, Anthony, you stay there tonight, because I uh, you, I don't want to send anybody up for you because there's then the soldiers are being very aggressive.
0: Yeah.
2: So sometime after that, Anthony took fear, you know, in the house that he was in, mm-hmm. uh, and he got up and he went uh, and he got somebody for to drive him down to the girlfriend's aunt's house. Mm-hmm. And he stayed there that night, Uh, they got up the next morning, they brought him his breakfast and he was doing great. They went to Mass at half past eleven. And sometime about twelve o'clock, the ambulance and all was called for him again. When they came home from Mass, they found him fully clothed and unconscious on top of the stairs. Mm -hmm. So they got him away to the hospital. Father Q's called with my mother, and he says, Sadie, Auntie's Auntie's ha- had a bit of delayed shock. Leave him for three or four hours, you know, and, uh, and let him get settled." Mm-hmm. So at four o'clock, mommy went over to the phone box again, and she phoned up Daisy Hill Hospital, and she asked the chap on the receptionist if um, you, uh, how was Anthony Ruby doing? Yes. And this young fella says, "Oh." Uh, Mrs. Reavy, your son's gone home two weeks ago.
0: Uh-huh.
2: No, she, she says he's he's back in today again, and he uh-huh. says not a, not a, not at all, Mrs. Reavy. I'm on here all day, and there's no Anthony Reavy checked in here. Uh-huh. She says he was brought in in the ambulance, and he says, Mrs. Reavy, will you go on home now? He says, and and content yourself. Uh, he thought maybe that mommy was a wee bit yeah. deranged, you know. So mommy came over from the phone box and she was crying and she says, there's something wrong in Daisy Hill. And that's all she said. And we jumped into the cars, away into Daisy Hill, went up to the, re- the receptionist and I asked him about Anthony Ravey and he says, we have no Anthony Ravey here. Right. So I went down to the accident and emergency and they never heard tell of him. Uh-huh. And I thought, Jesus, this like there's something really really wrong here so we started to search the wards and i found anthony in a uh, uh, you know in an empty ward okay still unconscious
0: okay
2: nobody had ever seen him so there was there were like there was over 3 hours that
0: he was unaccounted for yeah
2: and that he didn't get any medical attention so he was unconscious and they sent him up to the to the Sent him up to the ward upstairs, the intensive care. Yes. And they tried to do something with him, and we were up there all evening. And uh, then a surgeon didn't come round the next day till about say uh, half eleven. And he said, "I think this young man has had a uh, brain hemorrhage. And we're going to send him to the Royal uh-huh. in Belfast." So he went down to the Royal and they've done a blood test or you know, the day test on him mm-hmm. and they said that he had a brain hemorrhage. The man that like that operated on him, I had known him because my daughter uh, knew, oh, and had been there and he and he told me he says, Your brother your brother is in a vegetative state, Eugene. Mm-hmm. He says he's not gonna get better. He says, and sooner or later I'm 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 gonna have to switch off the The life support machine. Yeah. So Anthony died on a Friday. There was a a post-mortem on a Saturday and we got him home on the Sunday. Mm -hmm. And then there was another funeral. We had to go through the whole same business all again. Same soldiers, same... Everything exactly the same. To this day, nobody has ever been made amenable for... uh, I mean, for this murder.
0: Yeah.
2: We know that it was... It was the... Um, uh, Glenann gang we know there was RUC involved and there was UDR and there was British Army and the police know and the police ombudsman knows and the HET knew and nobody will go and arrest the surviving members of this Glenann gang Mm -hmm. because they were all state informers and they are all getting paid from the state Mm-hmm. And they're afraid that if, that if they do lift them, that, that they have letters lodged with their solicitors t- telling what happened.
0: Yeah, understood. Stephen, um, as Eugene has already said there, those responsible belong to the notorious Glenann gang. A secret alliance of loyalists, rogue police officers and UDR soldiers and strong allegations that British military intelligence were also involved. Can you tell us all a little bit about this
1: Glen Island gang, please? Well, the Glen Island gang was a name given to them, I think, originally by Margaret Orwin uh, from Justice for the Forgotten, I think. Uh, I would correct one thing that you said there. Okay. Uh, there weren't rogue police officers. This was systemic. This was... Uh, yeah. uh, this. This um, fallacy has been put about that that the security forces, that the people involved in collusion with loyalist terrorists and with any other terrorist organisation, were somehow rogue. This was the system, and this is uh, uh, this is the important thing to remember. And we've got a case now against uh, which I can't speak too much about, against the British Ministry of Defence mm-hmm. and against the Chief Constable of the PSNI. Uh, and we have no intention whatsoever of having anybody punished. We uh, we don't want anybody else to suffer for this. Yeah. But what we do want changed is is the the system. We want to guarantee that uh, that this will never happen again. We want now in recent times, and as anybody has watched the uh, the the film the, our Netflix film, uh, which is now trending all over the world, will see that there is. Uh, a concerted effort between us and former uh, people, uh, Loyalist paramilitaries, to try somehow or other to, uh, uh, to reconcile and to... To, uh, to I have to say that, that uh, the UVF people that I've encountered and our organisation, Truth and Reconciliation Platform, along with our sister organisation, people that we work in partnership with, Glenn uh, Cree, that we try to identify what we call champions for peace in any organisation and we believe that within republicanism and within loyalism that there are people with uh, experience of, of having been involved in paramilitarism of some sort that they have, like us uh, been on a journey and that they realise that that the, the, the violence uh, is not the way to go it is not the way to... Uh, to, uh, to solve the problems of society, and uh, uh, Truth and Reconciliation Platform, or TARP as it's known, uh, we ha- we have a, a, a mantra, and it says that no side has a monopoly on suffering or loss. No side has a side, and I say sides that you know, in the, there is, that's a broad church because there weren't just two sides. Yeah, um, that that no side has a, a, a monopoly on the murder and the mayhem and the, the, uh, the responsibility for for these things. I have to say that that both certainly the people that I've been dealing with that there is an acknowledgement of what they did, mm-hmm. and that's what we want. And and uh, I I've heard uh, Mark McGuinness and I've heard other people say the same thing that they they acknowledge mm-hmm. that there was terrible things done. The only people who don't acknowledge is the british state and these are the ones and as long as they continue to stonewall and deny this um we we will we will pursue it until they acknowledge what they did and tell us that this will never happen again that this was that this was our a uh, modus operandi at, in the past and that it will no, no longer we will no longer murder our own citizens yeah uh, uh to it to for the greater good i mean Mm -hmm. how you know how mad is that and uh um you know i'm often asked uh, you know if, if there was anybody i'd like to meet if there was somebody that i'd like to sit down and have a conversation with and ask some questions of and perhaps get some answers Uh, um, you know who would that person be and I have to say that there isn't any one particular person you know people say that perhaps we would sit down with some of the military former military chiefs and ask if it was Nairac that was at or the scene of our incident I've never been able to identify the soldier I don't know whether it was or it wasn't uh, Nairac in our case but I know that he was very uh, close to uh, some of the people involved in our case Mm -hmm. Uh, We can't go any further than that. But what I will say is that I wouldn't ask any individual. I wouldn't like to question any individual. I would question the state. And the question I would put to them is, now that we know absolutely and with irrefutable proof that you were involved in the murder of your own citizens, that you were involved in using one side against another, uh, as you did right throughout the history of the empire, Will you now guarantee us that you won't do this again? That's my question to them. And I'm still waiting for that answer.
0: Good luck with that, but I, I know you certainly will keep going. Can Guys, I know time is really against us here, and I literally have another 20 questions to ask you, so I'm just trying to go through them here quickly. Eugene, um, can I ask you very quickly, if you don't mind, did you ever consider giving up, and what has kept you focused all this time? no i never ever
2: i never ever uh, even had a a thought of of, of uh, giving up because there was three young men in the prime of their life they weren't involved in any organization or or any illegal activity and they were just taken wiped off the face of the earth it was it was 35 years before anyone in authority ever came to see my mother and just on the on the theme there, Stephen was on about, is anybody I would like to question? Yes, there is. And my man is General Donnett. He's now Lord Donnett. He was commanding officer of the soldiers in Bestbrook at the time. It was he who gave the orders for the out-of-bounds situation at our house on the Monday mm-hmm. and the out-of-bounds at King's Mills on the Monday night. Mm-hmm. So... Um, he is definitely in my sights. There's been two or three people have went to visit him, and they've asked him questions, and he's told them completely to fuck off. Stephen,
0: <laughs> same, same question to you, Stephen. Um, what has been your main motivation to keep going this past forty-four years?
1: Uh, what motivated me in the first place, and I, I was a late starter. I have to say, you know, I, I was in denial. Of collusion, I, I was I was one of these people that bought into the bad apples. I was bought, uh, you know, on the rogue officers, all of this type of thing. Until I saw the irrefutable proof. Once I started to engage with the Baron Tribunal, uh, who what was, which was looking into collusion uh, and looking into our own case, and I suppose when we started to uh, to write the book, when oh, yeah. Neil and I got together to write the book. I began to it began to dawn on me you know this wasn't just a bunch of thugs this was uh this was absolutely uh, uh, collusion at the highest level and these people were directed assisted armed trained paid and the whole thing covered up by the british state and uh i'm a bit like a, um as somebody said uh, an ass eating a thistle i'll walk around it for a few days until i can figure out how to eat this thistle. very good but i will do it like you yeah. all did uh, again, time um, against us here,
0: Stephen. Recently, you indicated your openness to being selected as a senator. What do you think you could bring to the role, and what would your aims, if selected, be?
1: Well, what I what I feel that needs to be brought uh, uh, to the attention of the people is uh, is what went, what happened up here, uh, and in in fact, it spilled over into uh, in, in, into Britain and into down down into Dublin and uh, obviously Monaghan, uh, uh, all of the atrocities, uh, and also to highlight not just not just the atrocities, but to highlight the 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 willful ignorance of people in in, in the Republic of Ireland to turn their backs on what happened up there, and as if as if they, were, they bore no responsibility. We absolutely do bear responsibility for to see justice done on this island so, especially since it was done apparently in the name of the irish republic or it was done in the name of of, uh, of uh, a, a friendly country so called friendly country that all of these atrocities that were that were carried out uh, um that that involve us there's just terrible terrible ignorance of the plight of the the nationalist community up here that were just thrown to the wolves and were uh, were ignored for so long um we just better start looking at our history and it's a disgrace that uh that in in the republic history is no longer a core subject uh, and that has to be changed we have to we have to Become aware of it. So I would bring an awareness to it. I would also uh, I would also say that there are no voice. There is no real voice. No understanding uh, of the of what the people on both sides of the on both communities went through up here and the suffering that that continues to happen up here and and the injustice of of withholding information uh, uh, to help helping get some kind of closure. I certainly would. Yeah, that would be my 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 goal.
0: Well, there's certainly one message that Shared Ireland will be trying to um, send out to everybody, and we'll be starting a hashtag, Make It Happen. That's all I would have to say. Well, let's
1: make it happen. Yeah,
0: definitely. Tell me this before we go, just can you tell me, our our listeners, a little bit about how the Netflix production came about and what the response to it has been like so far?
1: Well, um, there was uh, Netflix uh, commissioned uh, a series of eight films. Um, which would which would highlight uh, um, a, a sort of a darker side in music, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, where music perhaps meets politics, and in some in some cases trauma. And they uh, one of the films, the first of the films that was released, they released one every month since last October, and the first one was uh, on uh, Bob Marley, where Bob Marley was. Uh, uh, both, both factions in a, a presidential election in, in Jamaica tried to uh, enlist him as a, uh, in support for the elections and he was apolitical just like we were in the Miami and uh, he said I'm not getting involved in politics so uh, uh, somebody within one of the factions was so annoyed that they tried to kill him uh-huh. and there was an attempted assassination on him, one man was killed and Marty himself was shot in the hand or the arm um, the second one was Johnny Cash uh, where President Nixon tried to enlist him to basically put down the anti-war movement and get him to sing songs that that uh, criticized the the hippies and the, all the young students. Uh, he, he gave him a set list and asked him to sing songs like Ogie from Muskogee," which was which was a, a bit of a, a put down for for the young people and uh, Johnny Cash decided he wasn't going to be used as a pawn in the in the politics. Mm-hmm. So uh, the uh, Victor Hara was a particularly uh, a brutal one. When Pinochet took over the uh, uh, in Chile, uh, um, there was a in, in the coup and and Pinochet murdered three thousand people and, and and in one case brought people into the uh, stadium. And Victor Hara, who was would have been known as the Chilean Bob Dylan, mm-hmm. uh, great. Uh, man who was motivating people uh, through his folk songs and that and they uh, they murdered him so that was a story they also did stories on a famous uh, uh, um, uh, rap singer um, um, jam master jay from run dmc and uh, and sam cook among others and they were looking at the at the conflict in ireland and they knew that music was very important to uh, to uh, in ireland because it, you know the folk songs and it was a way of carrying this so, they were talking to the Wolf Tones, actually, because it was uh, pretty obvious that, you know, their music would have been carrying a particular message. But it was more or less agreed that, you know, that they would have been speaking to only perhaps one community. Mm-hmm. And uh, during a conversation uh, with uh, Brian Warfield, who's a friend of mine, uh, Brian su- said, suggested that, uh, that they l- might look at the Miami show band. And obviously they had never heard of the Miami show band. So they got my book. They, uh, they called me and they asked me if I'd be prepared to talk to them. And all of a sudden, you know, it was uh, they were so fascinated by this. Uh, a, a group of musicians who were taken from both Catholic and Protestant communities, North and South, should be targeted in such a way for, to, uh, for the political, um, uh, somebody's political and military agenda. Mm-hmm. And uh, it took us about two years to do it. And these people came over with no agenda. They just wanted to wanted to understand what what this and all of a sudden of all these films and all the great um the company that we're in with Bob Marley and Johnny Cash and Sam Cooke and all of these people, we're trending. Uh, mm-hmm. uh number one all over the world. Gosh, you're the only one. Uh and and I think uh, as Eugene points out, I'm the only one of all of these subjects that's alive obviously well, Des, and Des Lee, Des uh, Lee. Uh, uh, the other survivor we're the only ones alive uh, so uh, I suppose we're easier to interview <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's a funny way of putting it it's yeah.
1: yeah. Eugene um, just
0: finally, one last word from me, Can could you maybe paint our listeners a picture of your Ireland in 30 years time how would you like Ireland to look
2: well, uh, you know, I'd like to see Anne, uh, all Ireland peacefully got. And uh, there is no such thing as asking these, these Protestant people for to leave Ireland. This is their place as well as our place. and uh, We have to find that space for ourselves. We have to treat them as good neighbours and they... They have to reciprocate and treat us as good neighbours, and I think that there's enough goodwill in the country and amongst the different tribes that we can find a, a new
1: way to live. Same question, very quickly, to you, Stephen. Well, um, with, uh, within TARP, we've we've got a lot of people who have endorsed us on on all sides. In fact, uh, the first person to endorse Truth and Reconciliation Platform and to offer his support was Martin McGuinness. We've obviously, we've spoken to people within the Unionist leaders uh, and we've spoken to people of all shades of opinion right across the board. And uh, we feel that telling these stories is very, very important. I think through an understanding and through uh, uh, mutual uh, uh, respect for each other, I would echo what um, what Eugene has just said. One of the people that has been a a great champion for for uh, TARP is Seamus Mallon. And Seamus once said at one of our events, he said, he said, you know, he said, we have a choice. He said we can we've we can either learn to live with each other or we must kill each other because the Protestant community is not our unionist community. It's not going to go anywhere. This is their country. Uh, the, the Catholic nationalist community is not going to go anywhere. And that's the choice. We learn to live together. And this is the legacy that we hand down to our children. So, you know, rather than kill each other, as these stories have just pointed out, the question I would ask anybody in their right mind is, having heard these stories, and we're just two stories of thousands of people uh, that, 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 that have been badly affected. Having heard these stories... How can anybody in their right mind for whatever agenda they have ask us to go back to killing each other and making more victims like this again? It is just totally incomprehensible to me. And is this what we're going to hand to our children? I hope not.
0: Eugene Revey, Stephen Travers. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to both of you today. And I imagine it'll be a very long time. Before I do such an emotive interview with anyone, uh, on behalf of our listeners and share Iron, thank you both very much for giving up your time. It's very much appreciated. And finally, folks, I would recommend, if you haven't already done so, to go on to Netflix and have a look at the Miami Showbahn film. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Thank yeah. you. Uh,